So you've just come back from Iran. How was it? It was good. It was good. It was a hectic one, this one. How many cups of coffee did you have a day? Oh, God. It never <laughs> felt like enough. I'd say I was averaging between five and nine cups a day. Um, just okay, so you scaled back a bit. A little, a little. But there's, <laughs> there were more new coffee shops. Zain Basravi reports on Iran for Al Jazeera. He's been in and out of the country for the last two years, and it's a place that can seem pretty opaque to outsiders. And Zain is an outsider, or he felt like one, until he started getting coffee. People come and sit, and you'll lounge for a long time and talk, and, you know, it's a date scene. It's Restaurants and coffee shops are, are really taking off. I'm Imtiaz Tayeb, and this is The Take. Iran marked a critical anniversary last month, 40 years since the 1979 Islamic Revolution. That's enough time for two generations to grow up under the clerical system of government. This is not a country frozen in time. Iran is always changing, but people have very different ideas of what that change should look like. This is what we wanted to talk to Zain about. Revolution, reform, and coffee shops. A little history. In 1979, a revolution kicks out Iran's American-supported head of state, Shah Reza Pahlavi. For Khomeini, the flight from Paris to Tehran marked the end of 15 years in exile. Islamic leader Rahullah Khomeini becomes the country's supreme leader. He said, foreign advisors have ruined our culture and have taken our oil. The clerics are in charge. Islamic doctrine becomes the country's driving force. And that left little room for debate. Universities were shut down, and so were many cafes. The universities did open up again. So did the country, to an extent. The U.S. and the Islamic Republic of Iran never made up, though Iran did establish diplomatic ties with the rest of the Western world. Unmarried men and women started hanging out together again, carefully. Today, they meet in cafes, one of the places where ideas of reform keep rubbing up against the ideals of the 1979 revolution. How significant the anniversary is to people depends on who you ask in Iran. There's people who have willfully forgotten what it was like in the past because they feel that Islam is the way forward. This is a country based on Islamic ideals with a rich culture based in Islam. There's no statistics I could point to to say a certain percentage of Iran feels this way, a certain percentage feels that way, but there's a lot of criticism internally about how that system is being managed, about a lot of the economic troubles people are facing, how the old guard is not sort of modernizing policy to fit with contemporary modern problems that Iran is facing. But by and large, people support the system that puts a supreme leader at top governing the country through Islamic ideals. So there's a great deal of support for that. And I think people remember, you know, there's a lot of history just walking on the streets, like the, the architecture, the old American cars, the, uh, you know, the, the statues that had horses and riders on them that were torn down, and then they put, you know, Islamic symbols on top. So I think people are aware of their past. You've traveled around uh, Iran, but you've spent a lot of time in Tehran. Um... What's it like there? I mean, in many ways, Tehran sort of seems like a microcosm of Iran itself. You know, you have the affluent north, but you have the less wealthy south. Uh, you have development in some areas, but underdevelopment in other areas. What's it like 
for your average young person in Tehran to navigate this uh, this city, which has its own sort of duality. You know, Tehran is a is a city of contrasts. You know, it's it's beautiful. It's in a basin surrounded by mountains, um, and it can be gorgeous. But it is one of the most polluted places I've ever worked. So you'll wake up one morning and you'll you'll think you'll see the mountains in the morning. By the time you've driven into work, they've disappeared behind a brown haze. Wow. Their domestically produced cars are notoriously unsafe and terrible for the environment. You, you'll meet young people who, who are struggling to find work. Um, and then you'll see, you know, really, really wealthy young people driving very expensive cars. So, the, you know, there is, you know, very, very wealthy people um, in the sort of north of the city in places like Lawasan and in northern Tehran you know, on the, at the foothills. And then there is severe poverty in other parts of the city. And that disparity is something that I think is really starting to become much more apparent and obvious on the street. And that's something that's starting to make people sort of more angry at their leaders. Let's talk about some of the people you met. Uh, tell me about Azine Elahi. Uh, she's a jazz singer, and that's significant. So there's this appreciation of Western culture, specifically Western music. So we've been trying to speak to local musicians for months and months and months to try to find someone who is willing to tell us their story. We finally um, got a group, a jazz group of, of five people, a four-person band and, and her as a vocalist to agree to let us come to one of their sessions. When, when we first got there, there was like these four dudes, you know, plunking away, uh, just sort of practicing. And she was just sitting off to the side. And I thought she was a friend just there to listen. And at one point, she just stood up and started belting out these, you know, these beautiful old numbers. Pretty safe to say a woman, you know, singing uh, with the band, not the most common thing that you'd see. Yeah, absolutely. So she said that. You know, it's it's not that it's illegal in Iran. So in Iran, if you're a solo female singer, you know, performing publicly is not allowed. If you're in a choir, if it's classical music, you know, things that are a little more acceptable to overall official Iranian sentiments. Like religious music, like nasheeds or No, uh, you know, opera, orchestral, uh, mm-hmm. you know, classical, uh, Western classical music is, is, is fine. Choir, the collective voice of men and women is okay, but the solo voice of a woman is 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 contradictory to Islamic ideals and rules. And so singing jazz regulation. standards with a with an all male band is probably not something people exactly exactly. And she was saying, you know, they don't book major gigs, but they book a lot of small cafes. They'll book private gigs, but even in the in the little cafe performances, she said that her band and her they they they'd get about two songs in to a set, and then security would show up or someone would complain and they'd be told, listen, guys, you were able to do two songs. Why don't you, you know, cut your losses and uh, you got to go. Still, why does Azine do it, though? I'm still trying to understand, given the the society that she lives in. And OK, things are getting a little bit easier, but still not easy. Not an easy life choice to make in a, in a, in a country like Iran. Well, what's her motivation? 
Well, she's 19, she's young, um, uh, and her motivation when I asked her, you know, why she does it, she said that singing to her was like breathing. It was like a calling. You know, we spoke to her bandmates um, and to her, and they said there's more than, you know, one way to be close to God. For some people, it's, you know, the spiritual activity that we associate with her on. For a lot of other people, it's, it's singing, it's dancing, it's being happy, it's, it's more of a of celebrating life. And so, you know, Azine said that, you know, she, she to, for her, singing was, was, was part of her faith. It was like a religion to her. She's doing something that, you know, we might find normal anywhere else in the world. But, and I don't want to sound cliche when I say this. A friend of mine who I mentioned this to, I said, you know, her singing Frank Sinatra in downtown Tehran, even in a closed studio space, is sort of an act of rebellion. And a friend said, you know, that's, that's kind of cliche. That's what a lot of outsiders feel Iran is and that Iran is more than that. Um, and, and Iran, Iran is more than that. Exactly. And you, you've met people who don't feel like a zine, who yeah. are same age as her. Absolutely. And, and maybe don't agree with how Azeen chooses to live her life. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, Hajar Chanarani Hassam, Namoyande Majlis Shura Islami, Uzbek Commission Amniyat Emeli and Siyasat Khareji. Wonderful, thank you. Um, and um, can you tell me a little bit about your career? Uh, how, what did you do before you entered into politics? What tell us a little bit about Hajar Chanarani. She's not a musician, she's an MP. So uh, she was a member of parliament, uh, Hajar Chenarani. Um, she believes deeply that religion is key and central to the running of the country, that people should subscribe to an Iran that's run according to Islamic ideals, and that Iran will never be an Iran that will give freedoms to people that other countries do. But at the same time, you know, she said that the revolution was about people that, and that that had been forgotten, that uh, she even, uh, one of her speeches in parliament was to apologize to the Iranian people that the government had failed to address the problems of unemployment. That sort of made her stand out, that she felt that as someone in leadership, it was her obligation, um, if they weren't able to address the problem and fix it for people, to at least apologize for their failure. She also said that, you know, she wants to reform a lot of the um, laws with regards to women and the age of marriage and um, the age of adulthood that um, has been a problem. A lot of kids effectively, um, you know, what we'd consider kids by an international standard, you know, standing trial for crimes um, as adults and things like that. And, you know, relatively speaking, at 40, she's of the first generation of Iranians born under, you know, the Iranian uh, Republic, the Islamic Republic. The, the future, I think, is in the hands of people like her, who she, she says she calls herself an independent, but, you know, her focus is towards reformation. You know, it almost feels as if there are these two Irans, right? There's the revolutionary Iran, which sort of swept in in 1979. But within that, you also have the reformist Iran. You know, you have, you know, people like Azim, and you have other people who want to have a different experience in their life that goes beyond what the current system is like. Where do these two meet, or do they? I think that's the question that people have been trying to answer for four decades. Can can those two types of Iran coexist in the country? And it really, I mean, they have been. I think it's in pockets. I, I think it really, it, it it really is in the hands of 
of of the next generation under the current system of the of of like the the people who came into power who were young in 1979 and who rose up the ranks in the post-revolution period as long as they're around status quo is likely to remain they're the ones who benefit from um the the narrative continuing in the way it does one counter to that narrative is that the current president, Hassan Rouhani, has been much more open to allowing access to the Internet. And social media has become this very interesting space that not only young people are engaging with, uh, but almost every member of parliament has a Twitter and Instagram account. How has that factored into the narrative that the government is building, whether it's about its relationship with the U.S. or its relationship with the rest of the world or domestic issues? Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. You, you, there, there isn't an Iranian leader that I can think of. Uh, there, there isn't a relevant Iranian leader on the international stage that doesn't have a social media account. You know, these are, these are not just places where uh, people have access to information outside. It's where people within the country who are critical of the establishment find a place. Uh, we interviewed one cleric who said that he doesn't have the permission from the officials who, who govern uh, the public speeches of clerics to, to have a pulpit to voice his concerns. And he's, he's of the younger generation. He was in his 30s. And so he said that my pulpit is Instagram. And what he does is he goes out and he um, he, he basically you know, scavenges the internet and the accounts of the children of, of important leaders and puts it on display saying, here's the hypocrisy. These people in power say this, but their family is living in this way. And, you know, this is how they're incredibly wealthy and they're partaking in things that are counter to the ideals of the revolution. And so he's someone, again, who believes in the clerical system of government, but is rooting out corruption from within and using Instagram as his platform to do it. We need to talk real quick about U.S. sanctions. There's been some kind of economic restrictions on Iran since 1979. In the last few years, sanctions have been mostly about restricting Iran's nuclear program. Under Obama, there was a push to end all that with the Iran nuclear deal. This relief will be phased in. Iran must complete key nuclear steps before it begins to receive new sanctions relief. Now, under Trump, it's over. Sanctions are back. The Iran deal is defective at its core. Therefore, I am announcing today that the United States will withdraw from the Iran nuclear deal. So in Iran, in a few moments, people are suffering from whiplash. When I started covering uh, Iran, the United States was still a part of the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the 2015 nuclear deal. There was so much uh, positive hope and so much um, aspirational energy that had come with the opening up of Iran back into international markets. And there was all this vibrant energy. And it wasn't just commercial or business oriented. There was a lot of also, you know, dual citizen Iranians coming back to try to open, you know, coffee shops. You know, again with the coffee shops. But, you know, things did get pretty dark after the, the Trump administration killed the nuclear deal. You know, companies closed down, foreigners left, the currency lost half its value. You've spoken to people who feel they have no choice but to leave. Have people just lost hope? Everyone knows that there is a limit to how much longer Donald Trump will be in office. Maybe it's two years, maybe it's another six years. 
But everyone's sort of looking beyond that, and they're preparing for a world beyond that. Whether you're talking about the sort of special purpose vehicle, the, the, the banking transaction bypass that the Europeans have developed, which has you know, been criticized by more conservative leaders in Iran as you know, an insult. It's, you know, it's oil for food as far as they're concerned in terms of selling Iranian products for, for and tra- it's trading Iranian products for, for European ones. Um, but a lot of other people see it as a step in the right direction. It's lily pads. We've got to keep a momentum in this direction so that once Trump is out of the White House, then there is at least potential for Iran to move forward once again. So a lot of people are looking beyond Trump's presidency. But for now, what, what do they do right now? Are they getting any hope from their own government? One of the things we encountered in Tehran when we spoke to people quite often was the economic problems people are experiencing is starting to bleed into sort of other belief systems. So there's a lot of people who, because of the economic problems they face, are starting to feel disillusioned about everything. And it's chipping away at their faith uh, in the clerical system. Once I was a religious person. I hated the Shah when we chanted slogans to say silencing Muslims was betraying the Quran. We believed in the Quran. But now I'm 65 years old. I don't believe in the Quran or mosques. I believe nothing because our Quran and mosques have been betrayed. They broke my heart. More and more people are starting to say that when it comes to the economy or anything in the country, the supreme leader is someone who's supremely responsible. And, you know, it's down to him to urge the government with whatever power he has to try to fix things. So people are starting to feel like it's not just that they're suffering within this system, but a lot of people are saying that the system is the problem. Is the system acknowledging this, or are they pretending it's not happening? The system, you know, we spoke to Masuma Ebtekar, who is a vice president for uh, women and family affairs and under Rouhani's government. She was the spokesperson for the student group that took the U.S. embassy over in 1979 in September. What about international law in the case of the crimes that the Shah committed? Um, and sort of emerged as a, as a seminal figure in Iranian politics, one of the few women in, in leadership who is recognizable on the international stage. And she says she acknowledges the disillusionment that so many Iranians have. They say they're trying to be better. They say there needs to be more engagement you know, public discourse with young people. There needs to be more conversations with Iranian people to figure out what the problems are to solve them, which is great political speak. But they also stick to a script that it is American sanctions that are to blame, that we're doing everything we can, and that, um, you know, essentially passing the buck to to these external factors. Uh, There's a lot of uh, false news coming, a lot of uh, news which uh, depicts a very... Uh, wrong image about Iran, about the realities in Iran, uh, only to deprive the Iranian people of their hope. Which people are buying less and less because the problems aren't going away and they blame, you know, internal corruption they see and mismanagement they see and the visual way that disparity is playing out on the street when they see the, the, the children of leaders having, you know, these amazing lives on, on Instagram or whatever and then, that, you know, that doesn't... That doesn't sit well with people who, you know, struggle to pay for their next There's meal. There's a dissonance there. Yeah. When we look towards the future, we still have a lot of people wanting to leave. Give us a sense of how serious this is for Iran as it tries to move forward as a nation. For every young person that wants to leave, there's a young person that... Uh, is there and and wants to stay there and believes in the current system. 
Um, where does that leave the future? Um, you know, it's 40 years is a very short amount of time when you're talking about the life of a country. Um, you know, 1979 feels like a moment trapped in history. You know, this moment frozen in time, but 40 years is 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 a short span of time when you're talking about the evolution of of, of institutions and of of systems of government. So, Iran, in many ways, is still finding its feet. The women we heard from earlier, Zeen Alahi, the jazz singer, Hadra Tenorani, the politician. You talk to these women 40 years after the revolution. What about the next 40? I think any talk of a threat to the current system is overstated. Um, the current system of government is deeply, deeply entrenched. It's, it's, it's a very strong, institutionalized, bureaucratic system. Hajar Chinarani subscribes to the system, and so she's probably got a much more comfortable future ahead of her. Um, for Azine, I, I asked her, you know, does she want to stay or does she want to go? Um, and she said sort of two very interesting things. I think, you know, Iran, I don't want to paint Iran in a bad light. It is actually a very fascinating, wonderful place to be. Everything from the history to the natural beauty, it's, it's an astounding country. Um, and she said that, you know, you can be who you want to be, um, but that if she had to, to pursue her, her personal dreams of singing on stage, that she would leave. Where will you go? What's your plan? Every, everywhere, uh, I don't know, everywhere that I could be, that place. So that gives me hope that the diversity of perspectives that are in place in Iran can coexist in Iran. If Iran is allowed to sort of evolve on its own under the current banner of the Islamic Republic, that it may be a different place in the hands of, of, of younger people. Um, but um, at the same time, I think for the people who choose to be a little different, it, it, it will be a struggle. That's it for us this week on The Take. If you haven't already, be sure you subscribe to the show and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. This episode was produced by Ney Alvarez and Amy Walters. They had production help from Morgan Waters, Dina Kesbe, Jasmine Bayumi, Priyanka Tilve, and me, Imtiaz Taib. Seth Samuel was the sound designer. The show's lead producer is Graylin Bashir. Special thanks to Yara Elmjui and Zain Basravi. And if you're wondering how we know so much about Zane's coffee habits... Oh, dude, you guys trolled my Instagram. <laughs> so I, it was a very cold morning, and I went to this one coffee shop near where I was staying, and um, they have specials. They have seasonal specials. They had pumpkin lattes, which was a clear ripoff of Starbucks, but delicious nonetheless. And then a few months later, when I was there last... Um, they had this butter coffee. And it's sort of this, like, hipster artisanal thing maybe, but it was just a, a wedge of butter in a, in a black Americano. And, um, and I think it was just a little bit more fat to keep you warm uh, when it was that cold. But it was delicious. It was, I hate that I loved it, but I, I did. I feel like I've heard this word. It's like bulletproof coffee, right? Like, it's a cold weather thing. 